Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today to talk about crypto funds, uh, and we have uh, three excellent guests to, to join us in, in doing so. Well, let's start with introductions. Jake, why don't you start uh, with an introduction of who you are, what Coin Fund is, and what a crypto fund means to you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you um, for inviting me to be here. Uh, my name is Jake Brookman. I'm the founder of Coin Fund. Uh, Coin Fund is a crypto fund and blockchain technology research company started in uh, 2015. I've uh, been in space a bit longer than that, uh, but we have been basically investing in digital currencies and digital assets as an asset class since, since that time. Um, actively involved in the space, sort of watching Ethereum uh, come to fruition and develop. You're continuing to, to invest in the various uh, strategies around the space. I think what I guess a crypto fund, you asked uh, what, what, what I think a crypto fund is. I, I think a crypto fund is a, an investment vehicle that focuses on this particular asset class, uh, the asset class of, of digital assets. And that is a highly new, nascent, and, and, and technical vocation to evaluate these, these kinds of assets. Uh, so that's what a crypto fund specializes in versus just a VC fund or a hedge fund. Awesome. A- Andrew, how about you? Hey, my name is Andrew Kronk. I'm one of the partners at Figment. We invest uh, capital and hash power in all things decentralized. So for us, it's about the whole space of decentralization, of course, which crypto and blockchain is, is a huge component. But we're coming at this from the perspective of technical founders. Started a few companies and had a chance to sell a few, caught the crypto bug like many people a few years back, but really started looking at what does it mean to invest in the space? What is what is a fund? I've you know, been in LP and funds, took money from VCs, but how does that translate? And when we think about that question, it really comes down to what are you investing in? Is it a company? Is it a project? Is it a community? Is it a network? And how do you help it grow? And so we're coming from sort of the first principles of we're investing in networks and our job is to help grow networks. So they need money, but they also need what I said, we invest capital and hash power. That hash powers is in air quotes. It means that we want to be active participants in the network. We think we can help projects grow by being a validator, by being the equivalent of, of, of a miner. And so when we look at a project, we want to sort of put money to work and put elbow grease to work. And that's our approach. How about you, Meher? Hi, I'm Meher. I am a show host at Epicenter.tv. Epicenter is a cryptocurrency podcast that's been running for the past five years. We've interviewed around 400 guests in the cryptocurrency and blockchain technology spaces. I'm also a co-founder at Chorus One, which is a pure play validation services company. So uh, I think both Jake and Andrew run run firms that uh, that run validators as part of as part of their business. They invest they invest in networks as well as on validators. Chorus One is different in that it's a pure play validation company. We are not investors into networks per se. We are there just to run the infrastructure in as secure a way as possible. And in the future, offer services to funds such as uh, Jake's uh, in order to do, in order to implement their strategies and their thoughts better on these networks. Cool. So before we get into where crypto funds are going, perhaps, Jake, you could start with a little bit of history of What have you seen in the last few years in terms of how crypto funds have have started, how they've evolved, and how is that sort of setting a precedent for where it's going? Absolutely. That's a great question. And, you know, I think where we started out in this space back in, you know, 13 and 14 and even 15 is uh, just kind of traditional investors starting to look at the space. And there's this really interesting thing that happened, which is that many kind of early stage folks, uh, VC folks, decided to begin early investments in those years in companies that were building decentralized networks. And what happened was that they used the tools that VCs use, which is basically the evaluation uh, and execution of, of equity deals. What ended up happening is that many of these companies built decentralized networks, and the value of those networks really accrued not in the equity of the parent company, 
but in the token of the network. And this is, you know, this value is kind of a speculative value, not necessarily a fundamental value, but value nonetheless. And what this signaled to um, to folks is that blockchain is kind of a different and, and challenging creature and kind of required a little bit more thinking about, like, what is the correct way of structuring an investment? And the sort of traditional way of doing it was not really the, the end-all, be-all, as it turned out. And many of those networks, um, again, you know, accumulated value that did not accumulate in, a, in an equity model as it would have done traditionally. So the, you know, the response of, of, of traditional investors uh, over the following years has been to restructure their funds, to change their LP agreements, to, to be a little bit more liberal, to be able to invest in SAFs and convertible notes for tokens, to invest in digital assets directly and so on and so forth. But blockchain is a little bit even more complicated than that, um, because what you what we now see is, uh, for example, kind of layer two technologies coming in the horizon, and many layer two technologies, at least in the way that they exist today, um, they don't have a token, as you know we're used to in decentralized networks. They don't have investable equity. In fact, many of them are just open source projects with founders building applications on top in order to monetize them. And so yet again, we're in this kind of investment conundrum. How do we capture the value of certain uh, decentralization technologies correctly? I think what a crypto fund does is tries to solve that problem. Um, and I think, I think the space is slowly learning about all the different possibilities that could be. And coming to a thesis that crypto funds actually need to be like very flexible in how they structure investments. And some of those investments are going to be equity investments, like usual. Some of those investments are going to be token investments. And some of those investments are actually going to be direct participation in networks. Because in certain cases, that is the way of capturing the value uh, of a particular technology. And that's kind of where... You know, my thinking has always been as, a, as, we, as we progress and evolve in, in, in the space of funds. Can you talk a little bit about the different approaches you're, you're thinking about uh, moving forward in the future? So, so the, way that, the way that I see this uh, developing, and this is kind of, I'm glad I have these uh, Meher uh, and, and Andy here, uh, because I think they're, they're very much thinking along the same lines, is that I, I think um, the vocation of investing in decentralization technology and decentralized networks is getting inherently more technical for investors. And we can point to examples today where investors who act passively in networks are not getting the best deal compared to active participants in those networks. And I think, you know, the way that I am kind of extrapolating the, this, this future is that the technology is going to force funds, investors, you know, and other participants to, to be active in order to get stakes in, in, in the network. And what that's going to, what, what that's going to result in is that in like professional investors in blockchain are going to have to get a lot more technical and a lot more involved in the projects that they invest in. What do you guys think? The one thing that I think a lot about is what these companies become, right? As an investor, your job is to take someone's money and give it back to them at a multiple. And so when you do that, I think is, is really what's maybe new in this space. You may have a liquid asset where most traditional VCs, you know, they dream of getting a liquid asset. They have a private uh, uh, security or equity that they can sell at usually other people's behest. So that's one change. And that, that's well documented. There's a rise of crypto hedge funds and essentially people who are, are trading on that. But what I think a lot about is the companies that are trying to essentially tear themselves apart or decentralize themselves. If you watch at what someone like uh, Aragon is doing, where they're trying to remove themselves as a centralization point, you would, of course, not want to invest in the equity of that company because it's trying to destroy itself. And they did a token sale. So maybe you're holding the token. But what if they didn't? How would you uh, participate in that as an investor? And maybe the answer is you don't, but I think that's where a lot of the, the new stuff in the space is going to evolve, which is um, kind of building on what Jake said is you might have to be more technical to participate. You might have to earn your way in. That's the kind of stuff that we're really excited about. So uh, what's really interesting to me is, uh, of course, uh, as Jake said, there are, there are tokens which reward 
participants that do things actively so these are tokens such as cosmos atoms in which if you run a validator you you make interest on these atoms and if you don't you don't make any interest what's what's happening this year is you see a lot of different players from different backgrounds that are building validators or off-chain operators in order to make interest on these assets so what are the different types one type is what jake is doing with coin fund which is they're a crypto fund first their duty is ultimately to make uh, returns for the lbs and they are running validators or n- network infrastructure as a way to facilitate those returns if my understanding is correct figment might be similar but there's another company that's doing something similar which is mythos so crypto hedge fund first running a validator in order to generate returns then you have exchanges that are springing like exchanges that are wanting to be validators so coinbase has announced that they will be validators in many of the proof of stake networks so that's a separate kind of player you have on chorus one side we have like pure play validators so these companies uh, and there are there are there are a few of them would just want to run the network infrastructure we are not necessarily looking to invest a lot of capital into these networks ourselves as a company we're looking to just run network infrastructure and ultimately seek out a class of users that will want to delegate their tokens to us these users could be crypto funds themselves and then fourth there are another category of uh, of players coming in which is the custodian plus validator so uh, crypto funds when they grow beyond a certain size there is 150 million dollars in asset un- under management they are le- i think legally required to have uh, hand over their assets to a, a qualified custodian and many people theorize that these qualified custodians will also end up running validators although we do not have an example of such a company uh, today so what's interesting is you have at least these four player types exchange plus validator crypto fund plus validator pure play validator and custodian plus validator in the future and what i'm really curious about is how does the dynamics of the market evolve do each of these four types of players specialize in different things or do they have unique synergies with each other do they compete with each other these are the questions that are unsettled today and i'd be interested to discuss in this show just to kind of go off of what you're saying mahar you know it, it always struck me as this kind of almost dissonance right between the idea of a custodian which on the one hand you need for for legal and regulatory reasons and and it's sort of usually is touted as the reason why you know major institutions haven't gone into blockchain yet and yet intellectually we understand that if you're locking your tokens into you know essentially a vault at a custodian then they cannot be used to to do all of the things that tokens are are meant to do and and those things are are very very widely they can be um used for curation they can be used for governance they can be used for voting they can be used for dispute resolution they can be used for resolving augers prediction markets and so on and so on and so forth but if you're locking them in to a custodian's vault um they can't be used for those purposes and often those purposes are techno financial right they're they're earning returns uh for the for the utilizers of those tokens. And so I think I mean I, I think all kinds of players need to need to reconcile that that dissonance and whether you're a custodian whether you're a fund who's who's custodying assets on, on on behalf of on behalf of your LPs or you're an exchange holding funds on behalf of your customers, right? You need to be able to reconcile the fact that these tokens are not being utilized. And so this is where I think the again the direction that we're heading is is basically that like how do we reconcile that business Yeah and one thing I think about is um in those four different buckets you you talked about Meher is from the delegator's perspective for the people who are actively choosing what makes any more of them less attractive and how would those different businesses go to market So in the custodian it's sort of a captive audience right you're you're locked up so you hope that they do something with it so you don't get uh punished by inflation but for a pure play network or for uh, uh, an operation like ours 
So a quick aside, we're actually structured as two entities. There's Figment Networks, which is a standalone, what we call Mining 2.0 company. That's what runs our validation services. And then we have a fund called Figment Capital. And um, it's just sort of some ownership share in between. But they're really two separate things who have their own mandates and just happens to have a common management team. So that's how we're doing it, because I, I think some of the benefits maybe Mahara is alluding to with the pure play, I think that does benefit delegators. And so I think a lot about what would be good for a delegator. And, you know, of course, there's uptime and all, all these things, but I, I think you already hit it, Mahara, but I think it's actually security. And so what I'm trying to think, spend a lot of time is how do you actually prove that you have a secure setup? Because you can put anything you want on a website, but um, I think that's actually going to be probably the most important thing for, for a delegator. Yeah, like on the on the on the security end, actually, um, like one of the challenges that we are going to run into is that the market will is beginning will begin where it is very hard for delegators to actually judge the security of validators because the the tools to to do it do not exist today. How do you how do you exactly judge whether a validator is highly secure or whether it's not? So. One of the interesting things that that will play out in the market is like this market can suffer from you know the lemons problem. This is theory. This is theory in economics that if you have markets in which there are consumers and there are producers, but the consumers aren't able to judge the quality of the producers very effectively, then those markets are actually liable to failure of some kind, where the high quality producers. Ex- end up exiting the market and the and the market is populated by only the low quality producers in the beginning six months or one year we are operating in such an environment where projecting quality is quite hard for a validator and differentiating themselves from the from the others and expressing their value proposition is quite hard but i think like these tools will evolve evolve in the next like six to twelve months yeah, I think one thing that is going to be interesting is the three of us on this call um, will probably be participating in networks together. But I don't see those networks really as a zero-sum game. Yes, there's a finite amount of tokens, but specifically in, in proof-of-stake style networks, you can't have one validator owning 50% of the tokens. I, I At least I don't foresee that happening. Maybe it will. But I think actually to get these networks off the ground, to get them to grow, which is what anyone who's running infrastructure or thinking about this from a, an investment perspective needs, it's got to be more cooperation than, than sort of just brutal winner-take-all competition. And so how that plays out is something I'm keeping an eye on. How big can a validator in Cosmos get before the network pushes back? And you can kind of see this playing on Tezos right now. But that's that's one of the things I think is fascinating is, you know, we all have different strategies and approaches, but we kind of all need the network to work. We can't take down the network to succeed because we'll be left with nothing. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I, <laughs> I, think, I think it definitely has to be a cooperative effort at least in the you know in the, in the early stages of these things you know you'd be surprised how actually difficult it is to create a network with the right economics and uh, I'm saying this from a place where we just we just did like a pretty thorough study of, of life here and how it works we're going to probably publish that in, in a little bit but you know one of the things that comes out of of live here is that this is a network that uh, where the founders have taken great lengths to to create sort of a very egalitarian distribution to sort of limit their own holdback of tokens to incentivize actors in the network to participate in the protocol and not just hold tokens for kind of speculative financial reasons right like the, the founders have done everything right and yet there are um you know, there, there are certain edge cases here that are still there anyway. And just, just from the fact that these, that these systems are a huge challenge uh, to design. You know, and like one thing, I kind of tweeted on this a little bit the other day, but, you know, one thing is, is that it, even though kind of the early, you know, large, early backer investors of the token, even though they're on, on a vesting schedule, it's still possible for certain people to kind of gain disproportional shares of the network. And the way that what like one example of how you might do that is you might go around to every uh, early investor who has a little bit of tokens vested and buy up a whole bunch of tokens and then you become kind of like a large holder. And actually you're you're better off than those early investors because your tokens are liquid and their tokens are being vested. 
So you can you can bond your tokens to to the protocol uh, validators. You can earn maybe more interest than them, and so on. Another thing you can do in life here is is engage in, in a kind of mining activity. And if you're particularly good at mining, if you're technologically advanced, if you're if you have acumen, if you can sort of bring up software quickly uh, to do those kinds of things, then you stand to potentially make it you know have an allocation of that particular network that's comparable to the, to those very early investors. And so it's tricky and I think everybody has to kind of collaborate and understand these networks together a little bit and then participate in a way that is that accommodates kind of everyone and doesn't have these sort of you know edge cases where one person takes over the network or something like that. Right. When I when I'm thinking about uh, proof of stake style or delegated proof of stake style networks, people talk a lot about how in, in Bitcoin, you know, you could do a 51% attack. I think it's a different risk in a lot of the uh, BFT style networks where if one third of the voting power goes offline, the network is down. And so it's 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 more it's it's a different kind of risk and I'm if that in those systems if that threshold is crossed, I just I'm fascinated to see if, if the network will allow it or not. Because I agree with you, Jake. These things are really hard to design. We're essentially doing planned economies, and those don't have a, a really good history uh, in the world. So um, I, th- I assume there will be false starts and iterations. And I think the solution for this that uh, people hope for is something equivalent to on-chain governance that could fix the problem. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, screw-ups and fixes than out-of-the-gate successes. Yeah, and, and and just again, like from from kind of the experience of of due diligence, due diligence and modeling these kinds of networks, it's like sometimes those edge cases are quite hidden. You're like you think you have picked kind of reasonable you know, allocations, defaults, parameters, or something like that, but ultimately, if the kind of the central company, the controlling company, wants to go away, it needs to give control of those parameters to the network itself and then you start running into okay well who controls the votes how does the government system work can whales actually disproportionately affect the network and you can you can give a very very simple example like again in live peer you know the number of validators has gone from 10 to 15 recently and that was sort of like a, like a unilateral decision of the team in an early stage of the protocol right but ultimately you can see that that parameter might be controlled by by a governance system. Now, if there are a finite number of slots for for validators and there's only so much inflation to go around, obviously, if you increase the number of validators, you're kind of diluting the rewards that everyone might make. And so if that parameter is able to be controlled by by whale, let's say, it's going to be in his interest to to lower it, while it will be in everyone else's interest to, to increase it. And so there's this kind of interesting uh, tug of war going on there, and that governance system better be uh, able to handle it correctly. And those things are, are very, very tricky to do. I think this is, uh, this is a really interesting problem for networks that actually make cash flows of some kind. So the essential problem is, if you look at a network like LivePeer, ultimately the expectation is that users are going to pay the network operators for the facility or service of transcoding and broadcasting live video. So if you imagine any network, let's say it has 10 million users, right? And they each each have a spend of, let's say, $30 or $10, right? So that's $100 million in revenue getting going into the network in the future annually the question becomes so and this 100 million that goes into the network will ultimately be divided among these validators or network operators or transcoders however we might call them so if if you are a network operator or in such a network you want to have a greater section of the 100 million coming to you right if you think competitively and so if you have a particular network operator that controls the stake and therefore controls the governance, they would want to limit the number of validators and have a bigger share of the 100 million. And the typical answer of like governance through voting does not work here because there is a problem of the majority attacking the minority. If there's a if there's a cartel of few people that can that have greater than like 50% or 66% of the tokens, they would always want that cartel to make 
the lion's share of the 100 million that the network is earning and so they could do that by restricting the number of validators which is itself a governance parameter so i think like this kind of problem has never been seen in production and we may not even have a solution for it solution for it today yeah and i think you can see how far down in the weeds we quickly got talking about specific networks and jake was mentioning edge cases right but to kind of like bring it back to the topic like as an investor you should be doing this work or you could sort of spray and pray and just and hope the team figures it out which maybe that's a fine strategy in itself but this is a kind of work that cuts across uh, you know tech chops across thinking about how these uh, different game theory scenarios play out this what makes investing fun but i think also to investors who will be successful in the space will have to be multidisciplinary Absolutely. And, and this is the word that we use at, at CoinFund so much. If you kind of look at uh, the sort of people that have come together in our company, you know, you have you know, two co-founders that have a background in mathematics and computer science and have worked in, uh, you know, on Wall Street basically for, for, for many years. But in, in, in technology, uh, you have someone who is a uh, Alex Felix, our chief investment officer. Uh, someone comes from more like traditional finance and uh, financial analysis and kind of private equity investing and angel investing in tech as well as blockchain. Our fourth partner, Oleg, is, uh, you know, is, is our CEO and, and general counsel and sort of like his job is to, uh, among other things, keep a, a tight rope on the regulatory developments in, in crypto and how tokens are defined and classified and all that stuff. But he actually has a degree in computer science. And then Alex Bulkin, my, my technical co-founder, actually has a second degree in behavioral uh, or in organizational psychology which <laughs> which really comes in handy when you're when you're evaluating things like I don't know the Dow fork uh, and how people might resolve the, the disputes and, and using forks and so on and so forth and so that's the that's the real I think location of a crypto fund is that it quickly gets extremely technical in certain cases it gets extremely social in other cases and overall it's just a very multidisciplinary activity that can go deep in each of its of its aspects and so when you think about you know kind of traditional vcs uh and technology they're all very 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 smart folks but they are not kind of protocol designers um, they're not consensus algorithm evaluators and the kinds of issues that we see in these you know really "Quote unquote crypto native like decentralized networks goes far beyond like the typical experience of of, uh, of analyzing companies. So so the correct skill set is not investing, and it might not even be tech. It's like the combination of of all of those things, which I think is like really really interesting. I'm curious how Meher how um how you think about this. So as a pure player, you have a slightly different mandate or maybe way you view the world. How do you choose which networks to operate on? Is it do you think about a portfolio? Do you think about in, in terms of having a construction? Do you think about highest ROI, long-term conviction? How do you think about where to put your time? I know you mentioned it's um, a capital light business, but there's probably opportunity costs is probably your, your biggest thing is becoming you know expert at running these networks. How do you think about uh, where you where you um, operate? Yeah. So so as a as a pure play validator, um, what's our mandate? If you have a if you have a fund that's a validator. Their the major mandate is to their LPs. Right? As a pure play validator, uh, we are just building the infrastructure and wanting to attract delegations from from different users. So I think one of the biggest focus areas for us is going to be user experience, right? So if you look at the market, there's different kinds of users that value different things. Like you might have you might have like mom and pop users that that want the simplest user experience they don't want to be bothered by governance or things like that they want to click a button and have validate unclick that button and shift their shift their stake to a different network you can have like community oriented users that want to participate a lot in governance you'll have hedge funds like crypto hedge funds uh, they might be analog hedge funds or quantitative hedge funds. So by analog, I mean like the, a human is actually doing the buying and selling. You might have a quantitative hedge fund that is that is building an algorithm to do it, and then you have exchanges. So as a pure play validator, our our interest is to build infrastructure and build a UI for a specific audience. 
that will make their life easier and that UI will be targeted specifically for that user base. So I think this focus towards UI is what is what will distinguish uh, a pure play validator as compared to somebody that's running a fund and a validator. Because somebody that's running a fund and a validator may not invest a lot into a great UI. Now, so so right now, when we start out, it's pretty hard to build a secure validator for one network. We've invested the past eight months just building a secure validator for Cosmos. And to be honest, Cosmos is one of the harder validators to build just because the value at risk is so high in in in, in Cosmos. But technically, there are architectural choices that you can make early on in the game that would allow you to scale very easily to other networks. One of the things we have encountered in building the Cosmos validator is um, you have the option of building a validator, uh, standing up a validator very quickly at low cost, or you have the option of putting a lot of upfront cost into building one validator, but then your system is built in a way that it scales to a lot of networks very quickly. And then we've sort of gone for that approach. We've made, we've, we've built like custom technology on our, on our end that will allow us to launch validators very easily, let's say, nine or 10 months from now. So I think the right now we do face a dilemma on like which validator should we build right now because our capacity is constrained. But then one year later, once the benefits of our architecture start to materialize, we won't face this capacity constraint at all. And then we can uh, be very fast in onboarding new networks. Now, while this capacity constraint remains, we need to like allocate our, our attention very wisely and right now it's not too difficult as well so right now in terms of proof of stake there's just tezos that's live and cosmos that is about to go live there are some low odds that definitely might go live but i think those odds are low ethereum is slated for 2020 anyway our chain is still somewhere in 2019 so the decision space for us started to be between cosmos and tezos and between Cosmos and Tezos, uh, building the Cosmos validator is much harder. So that's why we ended up focusing on uh, on Cosmos. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I was thinking more about, do you view some of these as you know, high risk, high reward situations? These ones are your sort of value networks, sort, sort of applying traditional uh, investment philosophy to how you choose where to operate. I'm in a different, I view the, the space differently than you. I agree you can write software to automate things and you know, in a lot of my past companies, I was right, running global infrastructure for stuff. I'm not yet of the mindset, or I don't have the vision that you could, it gets a lot easier to switch networks or context switching across networks will become easier via software. And I think that's awesome if you guys can pull that off. And so I really think a lot about picking and choosing our bets, getting on networks we have long-term conviction on. And so if you can figure it out so you can just be on every network you want automatically, then that's incredible. But um, the reason for my question was, is, is I'm not there and I don't know how to, how to quite get there yet. I mean, for for us, for us, like Cosmos was the was the obvious bet. Like a a the network is about to launch uh, in a few months, but but b uh, in 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 like like the way we saw it, like in Cosmos, the slashing rewards are the are the starkest. So the amount of risk you face running a validator is probably going to be the highest in Cosmos. It's going to be much lower in Life Peer. So we picked Cosmos because it it allowed us to start at a place which was the most difficult and if we can build one validator on which we have really good confidence then we could like replicate that same architecture to multiple different networks uh, even if they are lower risk so that's why we ended up ended up going with with cosmos for the for the time being we do not yet have a very good internal framework on how we are going to make these decisions right so right now you can say that it's an ad hoc decision to to prioritize Cosmos and then Tezos. Maybe there's a framework we could build of categorizing networks as like high value, lower value, medium value, lower value. But we we don't have such a framework. So in I, I, I I have a few thoughts there. And 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 by the way, like I, I totally agree. Cosmos is like a very special case when it comes to these kinds of networks. Um, and so I totally appreciate the the approach that Meher has has done, and it's kind of the classical approach, right? It's like you get really good at one thing, and then you kind of go off into another thing, using the experience that you gained from the first thing, 
And and by the way, I, you know, I think this industry is going to develop over the course of a couple of years. So it's you know, there's definitely time to to, to learn and, and and sort of learn from uh, from other people's mistakes as well. And you always have to be a little bit careful when you're first to market. But let me let me give you another perspective, uh, which is that if you if you evaluate the crypto economics of uh, a bunch of networks, then I think what you'll find is that in certain networks, getting in early is actually a highly defensible maneuver, right? So basically, um, you know, especially in, in networks that have like a limited set of validators, like like Cosmos, like LivePeer, like Steam, and, and so on and so forth, and are often judged by, you know, the, the validator set is, is often the, uh, the, the validators that can demonstrate the most stake an early accumulation of stake is important. And so one might say is like, it's, it's at this point in time, as, these, as the universe of these networks are coming online, it might actually be better to get early into a bunch of stuff and do it a little bit like half-assed than it is to go deep into one thing and then be late to the party everywhere else. So again, that depends on like, can you find enough networks where that property is true um, that being early is a good thing. And I think, I think there's a bunch of them out there today. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I very much agree. And to, maybe I just can't change my mental model of the fact that one of these networks will probably end up uh, winning sort of proof of stake and being the dominant network. And that might not be true. Maybe this cosmos is the winner. And then we just have to get good at validating different hubs and zones. And that's very transferable to Meher's point of, Hey, you can just kind of run the same infrastructure. But if it's very heterogeneous, where you need to run some Ethereum node, you need to run a Cosmos node, and those have nothing in common, maybe you know, sign, maybe key signing is the thing they have in common. But I, I don't know. And so I think your, your point is right, Jake, which is if, if you just study how some of these early networks have played out, specifically live here, because it's, it's easy, it's small, you can wrap your, head, wrap your hands around it. The people who were in the top 10 were, were enriched pretty quickly, and it's hard to catch up. So I think I think that's right. The challenge, though, is when you look at as from a delegator's perspective, what influences their ROI, right? That's the big bet here is that you're going to have delegators, or humans choosing humans. It's really what's happening at proof of stake. And so that's a big bet. Will, any, will that actually work? And then um, what are going to be the biggest drivers on ROI? And I think at least with a network like Cosmos, the biggest driver is slashing or avoiding getting slashed. So avoiding getting hacked and double spending and avoiding uh, going offline for a long time. And so the risk in in your approach, Jake, would be that you are you half assed it a little bit too much, and you you tarnish your reputation in that community. And mm-hmm. so this is this is something I think a lot about, which is the transfer transferability of brand across these different communities. And will that be a negative signal or positive signal? You know, if it says, "Hey, guess what? Coin Fund is 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 coming to a network X." Will that be a good thing, or will the the folks from Cosmos, where you're mm-hmm. known, be sort of upset? And you can think about some networks um, like EOS, for example, those validators are, or block producers are going to different networks. How would they respond? And so um, to your point earlier, Jake, about there's multiple dynamics here, there's social dynamics at play. I think all that's going to fold into this. Yeah, I agree. I would actually argue that like long-term life peer is not one of those networks that where early advantage is good. And at least from the standpoint of a, of a transcoder, right? I think long-term what happens is that a lot of the supply gets unlocked. And holders of, of live peer actually become really empowered to like vote, right? And whereas like today, like a lot of the supply is locked either in the, you know, in the, in the airdrop, which hasn't completed yet, or in the vesting schedules of the team and, and of the, uh, and of the early investors. And what you see is people playing around with actually like a tiny circulating supply of, of LPT to the point where there's like, not even much of a market for it, right? At all, and and I think that changes dramatically over time. I think transcoders will be able to be kicked off like swiftly. They misbehave or are doing bad stuff or, or or just not being good enough. I think like Jake to your point on like maybe the optimal strategy is 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 experimenting with a bunch of networks and like doing a half half as job at at some, but like accumulating stake quickly in some networks. I mean, I, I think like there's a, I think there's a difference in, in, there are two different perspectives, right? Like if, if I were a crypto fund, right? And let's say like, let's say like I, I had, I had spread my assets. So I had 80% invested and I had spread my assets in like 10 different networks or 
15 different networks and like my biggest posi- position was like 5% or 6% of the fund and i was looking to build a validator for that particular 5 or 6% let's say like 5% is in steam i'm 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 looking to build a steam curation bot then i would actually do a half ass job at building a steam curation bot in that in that context uh, it it makes total sense i think with chorus one our our sort of difference is that a we are not a fund right like so we are not like we are not i guess betting or gambling or building with like 5% of our fund in mind uh, for us when we are building the cosmos validator it is the only thing we are doing right and uh, what we the kind the kind of validator we want to build is the one in which let's say somebody owns 2% of the network uh so that 2% of the network might be worth 50 million dollars so when somebody owns like 2% of that network worth 50 million dollars who do they delegate to like such a person is going to be extremely risk averse and conservative because if they delegate to a validator and that validator gets slashed they can lose 1% of of the atom supply and that's going to be that 25 million dollars so when we when we when we when we, when we have met people like that we we, we see that they are extremely risk averse and we are really building for for that kind of that kind of uh, that kind of audience when you think of like somebody that's going to delegate 50 million probably that that person is going to do a week worth of due diligence because if you think about like 250 million 25 million at uh, 50 million at risk it makes sense to spend I don't know fifty thousand dollars doing just due diligence on a bunch of validators. It makes total rational sense. Our approach has been to build a system great enough that even if we scrutinize with the highest level of due diligence, we will we will we will like we will persist with good colors there. But of course, the downside to our approach is at least in the beginning, our focus remains narrow. Our focus remains cosmos. Hopefully. our architectural choices are are good enough that eventually we'll get to a stage where we end up building the cosmos validator that's really good and then our architecture can also scale to other networks uh, pretty easily so we do think there are methods that will allow allow us to build a cosmos validator and scale it to tezos and ethereum pretty easily of course like scaling from the cosmos up to a cosmos spoke chain is always going to be much easier that's that's that will be super easy but like even scaling from cosmos to ethereum might also become really easy with certain architectural choices so that's the that's the market we are going for i think it's a slightly different market or mindset from the from the crypto hedge fund uh, mindset it could also be that um, that it's a suboptimal strategy to start with i think on i think like as time unfolds we'll we'll get to see if if it makes sense but at this moment we are pretty happy with it because when we come across people with significant atoms they value they value the approach of just doing cosmos validator really well so i'm curious jake when you look at these these networks what do you have to have conviction on to to spend your time on it because i do think that yes maybe um it, it can it'll be easier to shift into networks but there's always going to be an opportunity cost some of them you have to acquire some of the native token and all that sort of stuff. So, do you have conviction on anything about them specifically? And when you model it out, at least when I do the models, it falls out to price of the, of the underlying asset if there's a price and network volume. And so I I just wonder how you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's thank you for that question. It's so early. I don't think anyone has correct answers, but the way I kind of like the way I kind of crunch it is, you know, it's a portfolio optimization problem for me, right? It's like Um at the end of the day to the investor it looks like you are lending tokens right or you're like kind of investing in tokens and you're getting a return stream and some of those things are you know on on, on the one side of the spectrum you have kind of staking networks and those tend to be kind of like quote unquote low risk low reward right you have um you just take some tokens you have a fairly vanilla node software you load it up you make something like 5 to 10 15 20% a year in a token denominated way right and that's it and then on the other side of it you have kind of these like highly speculative totally illiquid prospective networks that you don't know if they're ever going to trade and um you're participating in their like token distribution right but the potential upside probably has a lot to do with like what the product 
is is this like a good use case? So so I think it's a combination of running that same due diligence process that a crypto fund has to run on every single opportunity that deals with blockchain technology, you know, early stage companies that are integrating this technology, decentralized networks that are designing crypto economic systems on the one hand. And then on the other hand is like, okay, well, now that I understand what the economics of each of these things are, how do I actually combine them? Right. So it's like, if I, if I just do a portfolio of staking networks, I, you know, my, my rate of return might not get above like 10% a year. So is that really what I'm trying to achieve? If I go way too speculative into a lot of like early stuff that's, uh, you know, on the cutting edge, a lot of it might fail or get hacked or, or whatever. Right? I'm not going to get the return that I want either. So I, I think, you know, I think it's like due diligence first and then, and then portfolio optimization second. Zooming out a little bit. You know, when um, Sequoia or Lightspeed or any of these sort of like, you know, tier one VC funds comes to you guys and says, hey, how should we be thinking about, um, or, if, or if they are to come to you and say, how should we be thinking about crypto investing? And, and they don't have some of these skill sets on their, um, on their team. Are they, is it sort of get those skills or, or bust? Or you sort of mentioned it in, in passing, uh, or sort of jokingly, Andrew, in terms of like, I, I guess maybe spray and pray is it, <laughs> if you have access is a, is a, is a good strategy. But how do you advise people getting in the game now that either have like, you know, great VC investing acumen or, or finance acumen or maybe have you know, great access or other skills, but don't necessarily have these skills that we're talking about? Um, I, you know, if you ask me, I, I think, I think it's just a matter of those kinds of more, you know, established or traditional investors kind of getting to know the space and just hiring the right skills and and just thinking about it the right way. I think the wrong way to think about it is that I can just walk into this space with a set of VC skills and just use that to to win across the board, right? So you, there's certainly areas in the space where that's an incredibly valuable skill set. Like any early stage project that you're evaluating, any team, like any uh, traditional company that's taking on a blockchain strategy, you might be able to apply those skills. But when you're getting into like the jungle of of like decentralized networks and crypto economic systems, where it's a lot of it is like math and computer science, then it's not a really good fit for a VC. So, so I think I think those companies need to evolve and adjust. Uh, get the right talent and get the right um, skills to to evaluate the opportunities. And by the way, I, I don't I, I don't think we've seen like I think we've seen the tip of the iceberg into how complex uh, and, and interesting these things could be. Yeah, I think it's worth zooming out and say why the heck do we go through all this effort to do this? Why do we have two operating entities? Why do we say we invest capital and hash power? And we think it's because. One, we'll get superior diligence on, on investments we want to make. And two, we think it will give us access to deals that we wouldn't see otherwise. And so to me, when I think about the, the heavyweights of, of VCs, um, we're directly competing with them. And I think our, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We all want to figure out how to grow these networks. And so maybe a good way to grow your network is to have a brand associated with it, which is, seems to be um, uh, kind of par for the course in crypto right now. Our hope is that the best you'll want to uh, you know, bring us into your company um, either if it's a limited validator set, you'll make us one of your validators or we'll earn your way into being a validator or we'll, we'll get into a, a round which is sort of small and competitive um, because we bring this operational side. And so um, your question was, what, what do we say when um, the larger funds try to ask us what to do? Um, often the, the conversation shifts to, can we invest in your fund? Can we invest in your operating company for intelligence? And so I think those are, that's interesting. That's probably just a way for them to you know, cheaply rent what we see. But that's that's kind of how the conversation goes quite often. Uh, Jake, you mentioned we're we're at the beginning of of figuring some of this stuff out. What other do you think? What other crypto native fund applications do you see on the horizon, or, or are you curious about that that we haven't yet gotten into? I think the other week um, I was reading. I believe it was Lightspeed. Let me see if I could pull it up real quick. Uh, but there was a you know in in crypto, there's always been this a little bit of a bias toward um, toward protocols based on fat protocol thesis that kind of came out a little bit early. There was a post called Fat Protocols versus Fat Daps versus Fat Wallets, which is um, a gentleman named Jeremy Liu. And he's with, is he, is he with Lightspeed? Yeah, yeah he's, like, he's with Lightspeed, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what he was kind of saying is like, look, now it's, uh, 
now that there's like a saturation of protocols and apps and middleware in the market, it actually might be time to start picking winners. And this is something that we at CoinFund have been kind of saying for a long time in the sense that, yes, protocols are interesting, but investing in protocols is not a panacea to kind of getting outsized returns just because you invest in protocols. In fact, it's not that different than choosing you know, which startups are going to win adoption for certain markets, right? Um, on the other hand, you have, you know, Coin, at CoinFund, we've worked with uh, some major traditional companies like Kick and um, and YouNow, both of those are Union Square, Union Square Ventures portfolio companies, who, who are basically the first uh, traditional tech companies to take on blockchain strategy. And when you look at those companies, you're talking about user bases and hundreds of millions of users, um, technical acumen, like years in the market, proven track record of delivering pretty amazing products, right? And a real opportunity to put blockchain in front of a real mainstream user base. We think those, like, why shouldn't that be as interesting as uh, trying to predict kind of like what protocol middleware will succeed? And so our approach has always been like investing at the bottom of the stack, at the middle of the stack, at the top of the stack. And it's it's cool that um, kind of the major VCs are now seeing that a little bit more. And are and are starting to to do that as well, uh, whereas before there was this like protocol bias. Yeah, one one question I ask myself a lot is, what's more important right now for a network to succeed: user experience or developer experience? UX versus DX. And I know there's a lot more to it, but I, I find that really focusing um, because it's essentially arguing what's more important: protocol or the app. And um, and I think it, maybe it's a, it changes over time. But I, I do think that we will see some successful or popular dApps, maybe wallets, start monetizing. And those might get funded and valued like a normal startup was because they probably aren't going to have a native token, but they will own the user. And maybe they will start participating in fees based on facilitating transactions in the network. Um, kind of to go back to Cosmos, I know that they Cosmos wants to incentivize wallets, which it was for me a new idea. They want to help the people who create the transaction uh, get a cut. And so then that company just has, has income based on transactions. And that seems like a very investable company. So I think Jake's point is right, that there's, an, there's enough saturation of these middleware and, and user-facing tools and applications that um, some of them may start winning, of course, assuming that there's usage. Yeah, I mean, in like Brian and I uh, were traveling the past month and we met a lot of different projects in San Francisco and New York. And we were struck with how, how powerful the wallets are in the future. One of our friends, one of Brian's and Brian and my friends, uh, Wendell Wendell Davis, he built a wallet in 2011, and he I think ran the company for three years. Um, just didn't have a way to monetize the wallet. The company failed, and then he shifted focus into other things. But now, you know, with all of these different financial services coming out, right? So already you see like wallets, uh, they have started to make money using Shapeshift. So what exchange the user ends up picking depends on what wallet you use. So if you're using Jax, most likely you're using Shapeshift. And Shapeshift pays uh, pays Jax in order to get these users. And Jax is making $1 million a month from Shapeshift just to direct the users into the exchanges. But then now comes the, like, the second second part, which is like now you have validators. And wallets will direct which validators get delegated to. So, you know, all of the commissions that the validator economy is going to make, probably half, 40 or 60% of it are actually going to go to the wallets rather than to the validators themselves because it's the wallets that bring delegators. But then you have things like, I don't know, you have things like Therma Protocol, you have DYDX, you have 0x. So when you have a, you know, you have 0x uh, like protocol and there are these different uh, order books, wallets can make an order book succeed or fail so some of the revenues of the decentralized exchange ecosystem i'm sure are going to end up with wallets somehow and then if you have derivatives markets and there are different order books in the derivatives markets part of those revenues are also going to end up at, at, at wallets so as the space pr proceeds and we end up instru inve inventing all of these new financial instruments so right now there's just exchange but now there's interest in the form of staking there's then, then there's decentralized exchange, then there's like loans, market making, etc. Wallets are going to make money on all of these different inventions. 
So these wallet companies will end up having these different cash flow streams, right? Some coming from exchange, some coming from staking, some coming from loans, some coming from derivatives, etc. Making the wallet companies really attractive as investment targets. What we also concluded from our sort of travels is um, that at least the VC investment community today doesn't get the value proposition of a wallet really well. Simply because like they've been investing into wallets, uh, non-custodial wallets, and they haven't been such great investments. But I think things are about to change on the on the wallet end. And like the, the thing that Jake mentioned, I wasn't aware of this block, but like fat protocols versus fat dApps versus fat wallets. That's such an interesting question. My bet is the wallet is underestimated today, but it will be one of the big big money centers the big uh, cash flow centers of the of the crypto economy yeah one question i want to ask you guys uh pick your brains about based on everything we've spoken about here is um well just to set the stage a little bit I- I've, I've long been thinking about just the role of communities and products can give unfair advantage to to vcs in traditional technology investing having been at uh, product hunt earlier in a platform that helps people discover startups and you know provides distribution to startups and so we saw a lot of you know, we had unparalleled or we had great access and we could really help startups and we had a great brand uh, that people wanted to wanted to work with. And so we were able to, you know, make a lot of angel investments and build, and build a track record. And now I've built uh, or uh, helped build with the team Token Daily, uh, which is doing something uh, similar in the in the crypto space or trying to sort of a mix between, you know, Hacker News and Product Hunt in the crypto space. And so and soon ahead and team has, has seen has a great deal flow builders like it top of mind build it every day help with distribution and so is they're thinking themselves hey should we be investing in projects um they also have sort of you know product updates where they're they're hearing from projects on a weekly basis sort of like proof of work style so I'm, I'm just curious if you owned that asset and you were thinking hey i'm going to bring a crypto fund to to market how would you think about one whether that asset has real value to leveraging that asset and Three, anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, that's that's the approach that we've we've taken so far, but we've done it with a different angle. So for Cosmos, we wrote some software called Hubble, like Hubble Telescope, and it think of it like uh, an analytics focused block explorer. So again, our mandate is to help these communities grow. We think that was a missing piece about the performance of of the network, and so that was our strategy: is create a platform by which we add value to the network, and then the value the network kind of adds value back to us, and so. To kind of mirror what you're saying, yes, that is working. It's definitely not a newsletter. It's much more at the data layer focused and, and sort of crunching numbers and presenting it back to the, the more technical community. But the output is the same, which is you get to see cool stuff. You get invited into, into spaces you wouldn't have gone otherwise. And so, and kind of to tie back to the previous conversation about wallets, if the wallets are the source of funds or delegation, they're all going to need data from somewhere. And you know, they lo and behold, they want to get it from us. And so I think, yes, uh, this is to kind of bring uh, the point home again. VCs have to do more or could do more. There's an opportunity to do more to differentiate. And, and that's how we're approaching it. Uh, I don't think I have a very satisfying answer to that. Um, it's just I would say that's kind of like not not the kind of business that we engage in. I mean, like to, to some extent, we have been a lot more open source than your typical fund. Um, you know, we've had the coin fund Slack as a as a resource since uh, early 2016 we've had our blog where we like often publish um sort of valuation thinking and 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 models and are probably going to even do much more of that going forward but but as a as a as a as a token daily style kind of like asset i don't i don't know if that's kind of like our core competency to be honest totally any any points or or last you know questions or thoughts you 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 guys want to leave us with I mean, my, my point is, uh, like, I think this idea of generalized mining or mining 2.0 or whatever you want to call it, the, basically the vocation of, uh, running validators, running staking nodes, providing services to, uh, to networks, providing resources to rec- networks, curating, running TCRs, market making, running proprietary algorithms, all this, this very rich set of, of vocations that, um, that occur in decentralized networks. I, I really think that, this is going to be, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on this from a, from an investment perspective, from a fund 
the crypto fund perspective, you know, many mm-hmm. funds, uh, even traditional VC funds today who are running things like, like miners as, as part of their, uh, as part of their investment strategy or at least investing in companies that are doing that. I think we're going to see a blurring of the lines between kind of service providers to networks and, and investors. You know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how, how that develops and, and, and kind of who comes out. Um, I think, I think we're going to see an explosion, a Cambrian explosion of, of companies that, that do different things. Because what we've basically done is, or what we're in the process of doing is kind of unbundling all of the little internal departments of uh, large hierarchical organizations. And now these companies will, will work across networks to provide services that normally like a hierarchy has in house. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. I think about it similarly, but I, I, uh, I use a different analogy, which is when first round capital came to market, they had the platform, right? And that was unique. And then Andreessen had sort of the services model. I think there exists mm-hmm. a, a, an opportunity for someone to make that for crypto, crypto native. What does that look like? One, what are the points of those platforms and those services? And what, how do you transfer that or that, that concept to crypto? And that's what we're trying to do. And that, that's generally our strategy is um, to try to fill those gaps. But um, I, th- I think VCs have always talked about value add and it's usually amorphous and, you know, we have recruiting or whatever, but to me, you can actually make it tangible and, and you can, you can make it measurable. And, and that's, what's exciting about investing in the space right now. Yeah. And, and just the just final thought on that. Like when I think about, I, I've been like solidifying my thoughts on this over the last weeks, but when, when I think about these, this general mining vocation, it's sort of a spectrum. Also, there's like a hardware game on, on the left and there's a software game on the right and and both of those things are are kind of defensible but in different ways the hardware game is defensible if you have you know sort of like large hardware setups and maybe a little bit of proprietary software um that is uh that's supporting them and then on, on the other side you have like a little bit of hardware because you have to run nodes and validators and so forth and, and service providers and workers, but really your defensibility is in the proprietary algorithm that you're kind of deploying as a service to a particular network. And if you think about what that means, it's kind of like we're, we're transitioning from quantitative finance where hedge funds create quantitative algorithms to trade in like the stock market or the FX market or the bond market. And we're kind of going off into this like techno financial world which is a little bit more general, where instead of putting orders into a stock market, we're putting transactions into like decentralized networks. But the vocation is, is very much the same. You have to come up with kind of quantitative algorithms to, uh, to earn a return at the end of the day. And, uh, and I think it's fascinating and I, I can't wait to, uh, to see how it develops and integrates with funds, custodians and exchanges and everybody else. One thing we haven't really discussed is who's going to be an LP in this? Like, who's going to understand this? <laughs> really futuristic, like, forward-thinking people. But, but I think generally, you know, like I said before, to the investor, it kind of looks like a bunch of different return streams with different, like, risk characteristics. And on the back end, it has an interesting implementation. But it doesn't necessarily have to be transparent uh, to the investor, interestingly enough. But, but realistically, I mean, you know, we've talked to endowments and fund of funds and I bet you, you, you guys have too. And like, they can barely wrap their head around like Bitcoin. And a lot of times you see in, in traditional venture capital is that the tail sort of wags the, do- the dog in the sense of LPs want to invest in AI and now VCs are AI funds or, or whatever it is. And I'm just curious if there will be enough institutional pull to help support this, this future of, of investing or if it's going to start small and then prove itself. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think like everything else in, in a, in a growing industry, it's all about adoption, right? Like when, when, uh, decentralized Twitter starts taking down actual Twitter, I think we'll, LPs will start paying attention or when banks start losing revenue, right? I think also that presumes that there's money to be put to work, meaning that the space can accept it. You, you couldn't invest in Bitcoin, right? And yet look where it is today. And so I think that part of the reason why we have this, the structure where it's a fund and an operational company is there may be opportunities where we're very bullish, but there is no capital put to work. 
what do you do? How do you get a return? How do you get exposure to the upside? And so that's um, something I think about a lot is maybe it doesn't matter if the LPs don't understand it. Maybe it doesn't matter if they never come. Of course, some companies will always need capital, but um, that's just one potential future. I mean, if, if I think, if I get out, like, if, if I think like as a normal person, why why do I need to understand something? Like, as long as it's making great returns, I'll invest in it, right? Like, so like, if you think of like value investing or something like that, I think the average LP knows roughly what value investing is, but they don't know what's the difference between style A, like what is the difference between Seth Klarman and what's versus Monish Pabrai, right? Like they don't know what the difference is between these two, these two investors. They all they know is these two investors have like produced, I don't know, 20% compounded return over the past 15 years. And that's probably why they are putting money in. I think the average LP doesn't need to understand ultimately how the returns are being made as as long as they're being made. And if they have some, a rough idea that, oh, they are being made by these, uh, by something like quantitative trading, like quantitative trading, there's a bot that's trading on stock markets. This is like a bot that's doing something on crypto networks and it's making money. I think, I don't I don't understand why why they should understand the thing in depth. I mean that's the job of the of the crypto fund to understand it it in depth, and I think we'll have a, my my I suspect that you'll have a bunch of LPs that that don't really understand how the returns come, but they invest because there's an evidence of like a stream of good years. If we build it, they will come. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding, guys. Right. I'll be sensitive to all of your time. This has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.